Hey guys, welcome to the Mortgage Man podcast. Now, if you are a first home buyer, then you are in the correct place. This first series is going to cover everything you need to know to buy your first home, including what requirements you need in terms of the bank, but also who you should hire along the way to help you out with that process. Now, don't worry if you're not a first home buyer and you're looking for an investment property, the next series will be exactly what you want to go to. So just skip the first five episodes and start there. Just a reminder that this is not individualized advice. If you would like individualized advice, please reach out and follow me, Aaron, the mortgage underscore man on Instagram or give me a call on 022-065-1217. Enjoy. Hey everyone, I'm here with Ant, the director, one of the directors at Tanta Financial. I am Aaron, your host, and today we're going to talk about the minimum requirements for someone that wants to buy a house or a property. Essentially, this is for you if you are a first home buyer or maybe a first time property investor. We're going to cover deposit kind of guidelines, debt guidelines and kind of the income requirements to to buy a property so and firstly how have things kind of changed with the banks since COVID has happened for those of you that are listening this listening to this the date is the 16th of July so we are just in a post-COVID economy so it is Mm -hmm. I guess stricter than they used to be yeah for sure um I think as, as with a lot of the world, the banks are still not really sure what's going on with COVID and <laughs> how they're assessing mortgage applications reflects this. Um, one thing that pretty much all economies and banks included don't like is uncertainty. And at the moment, it's still really uncertain what's happening in the world with, with COVID and when economies will open back up to tourism and you know, if businesses will continue the way they are or whether the property market will crash or, you know, there's a whole lot of uncertainty that's really making the banks, um, it's reflect, it's being reflected in their policies around how they're looking at um, people's incomes and deposits around buying property. Okay, so basically if you're going to put an application into the bank, you need to be looking like you're a safe risk. So have a job that doesn't look like you're going to lose it in the future. Yeah, um, exactly and kind of income that's going to be there for most of your mortgage or at least be able to get rehired if you do lose your job. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's um, at the moment it's really just about answering questions before they're asked. So if your job's, um, you know, you're in an industry that's completely unaffected by COVID, then we, we really just want to make sure you highlight that on an application form saying, you know, You've got more work than you had last year. Here's the projects you've got coming up. Just really sort of highlighting the the integrity of the business and the fact that it's going to continue to, to, to be solid going forward. Okay, cool. So I guess when people send us applications, we kind of look at the three, I would say the three main pillars, which are the main ones, but there's obviously a lot of other things that we look at. But the three main ones are obviously going to be where's the deposit, what amount is that of the total purchase price what is the combined income of the people on the application and what is the combined debt and what is that debt for so Mm -hmm. i think maybe just go through what they should kind of be at um before you know just for someone that's listening is like okay that's my milestone my milestone to aim for so Mm -hmm. with a deposit we know that 20 percent is kind of the 
the minimum or can people get 10% deposit houses? Yeah, so um, 20% is the benchmark where the bank's going to give you sort of their best deal, right? If you have less than 20% deposit, um, they're going to start penalising you in certain ways, whether that be you have to get a registered valuation on the house before you can you can buy it, or they're going to give you slightly higher interest rates. Um, all of these things make it harder to buy, and the banks do this essentially to make sure that you're dead keen, <laughs> and also because they're putting a higher portion of the money towards the property. So if they're going to be putting up 90% of the, the value of the house, um, they're going to want something more back for that risk that they are taking and that's higher interest rates and you getting the, the property valued and things like that. Okay, so... Minimum is 10%. Yeah, but if, yeah. in that case, then the other two pillars need to look better than they would if it was a 20% deposit, of right? Course. So it's like a yeah. sliding scale. If the deposit is lower, then the income needs to be higher and the debt needs to be lower or better. Mm. Um, but if the deposit's higher, so if it's like a 30% deposit, then the income probably doesn't need to be as high because there's less mortgage that they're servicing. That's and right. the debt can be maybe a little bit higher than someone with a 10% deposit. Yeah, so a good example of, in my mind, a straight out probably declined by most lenders would be uh, scratching a 10% deposit, um, some, exist, some existing debts, and then maybe... Uh, one, one income over two borrowers would be a good example of probably not going to happen. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. So when we talk about income, is there a kind of good guide that people could kind of aim for? So let's say the average house price is $700,000 in, in New Zealand. Let's say they've got a 20% deposit, so that's one one forty. What kind of income do they need to aim for to kind, you know, to be approved as... Mm. For, or I guess for that area to get a tick. Yeah, uh, it's it's so variable because it could, you know depending on the amount of kids you have, how many cars you have, um, all of these things affect are uh, added as expenses. So it's kind of like you can have a lot of income, but if you also have a lot of expenses, then they weigh each other out. But a general rule of thumb is an individual can borrow sort of between five to six times what their income is. So that's just a real back of the like you know really back of the napkin number. sort of rough number. So obviously, the more people you have that are going in with income on the mortgage, the much more the, the better chance you're going to have of it getting approved. As long so, as those people don't also have lots of debt. Yeah, correct. <laughs> but I mean, if they've got debt for the right reasons, then we can look at that. Mm. But if the debts, you know, um, for for weddings. <laughs> um, your things, you know, just that are kind of considered to be discretionary. You know, they're not because you've moved cities or you've you've taken on debt for a business purpose. Um, it kind of comes back to that conversation of good debt, bad debt. What's the yeah. purpose of the borrowing? Yeah, I think like in the last couple of weeks, we've put through applications where the bank has just wanted to see less than $10,000 of debt. Mm. But at the same time, that is debt for credit cards, personal loans, Whereas there was an application this week that a lady had a, you know, some debt because she was from the Philippines and she needed money to register as a nurse so she could work here. Totally. And that's obviously a lot better than a credit card to buy or to buy a car. So yep. it does depend on the debt. A student loan is viewed very differently than mm. a credit card, correct? Yeah, so student loans, um, 
they've got quite a big sliding scale because a student loan is uh, assessed based on it's just like a monthly ongoing expense it's not really considered the same way as a as a personal debt is but a as, as a lot of people would know that have student loans, um, it takes a pretty large chunk out of your income. Um, so sometimes, you know, it's just about assessing how long do you actually have left on that student loan. And some people might only have six months and then we can make a, we can make a case to the bank that maybe you don't actually include that student loan in the servicing of the mortgage because a mortgage is 30 years and you only have six months left on the student loan. So once again, it kind of, yeah, it depends on your individual situation. Mm. And that's the thing, right? The job of a mortgage broker is to tell the story of the applicant in a way that the bank can understand it, but also, mm. I guess, assess it on their own merits to make sure that it's a, you know somebody that looks like they're going to pay back the mortgage. Yeah, like lots of times, get a, you know, have a look at an application and and on an initial sort of like you know assessing the deal initially it looks like it's going to be you know a straight out no but then when you dig a little bit deeper and you have a look at it and you sort of understand the reasonings for things and okay this debt's because of this and this is going to be paid off here then the story starts to become a lot clearer and a lot a lot more promising um so that's kind of the more details we can have the, the better we can present the you know the argument for an approval to the bank Okay, so when people do these calculations on the bank's websites about whether or not they can get a mortgage and it spits out a number, mm. how current or accurate are those at the moment? It's very inaccurate in most <laughs> cases, yeah. Because it's, they're, they're, they're not taking in enough specific detail for each, you know, it's just a really, really, really rough number, estimate. Yeah. estimate. Um, and those numbers could change by hundreds of thousand dollars um, either way and also some banks aren't even assessing if you're not with that bank at the moment and you're trying to do a new build for example they might not even approve you um, so it, yeah I, I just recommend talking to a mortgage broker to get a to get an, an estimate of where you're at okay so let's say we say that the the ideal for a deposit is 20% if someone doesn't have a 20% deposit mm-hmm. what can they do to increase their deposit Yep, so you can look at, um, can you use some equity in, in a family's property, for example? If Typically what happens is younger borrowers have good income, but not enough deposit. Whereas people that have had property for a while and they might be getting closer to retirement age, quite often they have really good equity, so they've got a lot of usable money in their property that can be used for deposits, but they don't necessarily have the income if they were to buy more property. So... Um, first point of, point of call is always ask the bank of mum and dad, see what they can potentially help out with and talk to a broker so you can they, they can help walk you through what is actually Stru- possible. Structure it yeah. this way. Because quite often it's just about having the conversation with the parents in the, in the right way so they understand what they're getting themselves into. Yeah, and then I guess making sure your KiwiSaver contributions are you know, in a place that you can afford but also building your KiwiSaver up at the same time. Yep. Yeah, kind of so the banks don't really differentiate between whether you save the money in cash or whether it's in KiwiSaver. So my, my, for my thoughts, if your, your goal is to buy a house, then typically the best place to do that is just to save as much as you can in your KiwiSaver. Okay. And I guess also for people that actually do really want a house, like cut your losses, don't 
like spend your money on stupid shit if you have to move back home and pay less rent because you really want a house then that could be an option as well sure so that's the deposit income how can people increase their income like obviously they could get a better job get a pay rise that's not as straightforward maybe because there's mm -hmm. other uh, other variables so what things can they do kind of right now to increase that their income with their application yeah um if you're looking to buy a four-bedroom house and it's just you and your partner and you're only going to be living in one of those one bedroom out of four you can have two two people come live with you and they can be you know accounted for in the in the, the debt calculation so, so you can get some flat an extra three hundred dollars a week that you can use to help towards the income you need to service the mortgage that can be the difference between a an approved mortgage and a decline mortgage you know so Okay. That's one way. Um, other ways, I guess, would just be getting more people on the mortgage. Um, if you've got some commission incomes, having a look at whether that's you know can be included. Um, you know, if it's been if you've been in a sales job and you get sort of part pay every now and then, how long has that been going for? We can look at using that as well. So there's a few ways. And do the banks view self-employed income? differently to if you're employed like what are the requirements on that self-employed income is it depends with self-employed income if you are if you've been self-employed for a long time in that industry or whether you're quite new to it um, there is some people that as a rule of thumb the bank wants to see two years financials for for a self-employed business that can be variable though if the person's been on a salaried job in that industry prior and now they've just gone out and started you know pretty much doing exactly the same job but they've only been self-employed for a year but they've been in the industry for six years they're going to look at that very differently than somebody that's coming in fresh to the industry and going self-employed straight away um, so yeah long story short <laughs> okay depends. so if someone's got a new job an employed job they still need to wait the required about three months to prove to the bank that there's some job security there as well a uh, new job as in fresh to the industry or just like let's say uh moved back from overseas got a job maybe same industry but it's they've always been employed and i guess the bank needs to see that like, a they've got past their probationary period which is usually three months yeah. but also they've had the job for long enough that they actually want to stick with it like that's usually a three month kind of three months worth of pay slip is the, mm. the basic requirement correct yeah typically three months but I mean if if you're going back to an industry where your employer's happy to give you a contract with no 90 day period and it's something that you've been doing for a long time then I can't see why you know there's no reason why the bank wouldn't ass assess that as, as soon as you've got the job yeah job security is what they're looking for right yeah Okay, so last one of those three pillars we talked about is the debt. So ideally we want to see that the bad debt, the credit cards, the car loan, the personal finance stuff is below $10,000. Obviously it depends on those other factors. What can people do to get that debt down to below $10,000 or at least manage their debt in a better way? Mm, I think the first question to ask with the debt initially is, why is it such an issue? Um, it's an issue because in a perfect world, nobody would have debt unless there was a reason for it, right? So if you're taking out debt, it should be ideally, in most cases, the biggest debt anyone ever has is to buy a house. And that's a reason, that's a, that's a good reason to take out the debt, right? So 
the the main negative on debt is that it shows poor sort of character around your money and how good are you at managing your money. So it comes back to that security question of the bank is, you know, how how well how good are these people going to be at paying back a mortgage over thirty years? Um, to answer your question on paying down debts, typically you want to sort of ideally you'd like to have all your debts in one place and with the lowest possible interest rate. So if you can have a look at consolidating your debt, if you've got a loan that's got twenty five percent interest rate and you've got one that's got fourteen percent interest rate, you've got one that's got twenty percent interest rate. See if you can look at getting a consolidation to put that all into one loan and then you can try to pay that off as fast as you can. That's one way. Um, the other way is just obviously having a look at which ones you can pay off that have the highest interest rate and just understanding what they're actually costing you. So just doing, uh, doing a quick budgeting exercise and understanding what, what that money is costing you because most cases people haven't done that and they'll be absolutely amazed at how much it's costing them. Yeah, 25% is quite a lot, quite high interest rate on something that yeah, paying off over a long time. Um, the other thing I think you touched on is account conduct. So I guess that is the next thing the bank wants to see. They don't want to mm. see people going into overdraft regularly. They want to make sure that they're not, you know, they're spending money on things that are important and not other things, right? Mm. So it's a really good way to prepare yourself for a mortgage is to have clean accounts for four to six months before you actually apply for the mortgage. And what we mean by clean accounts is not dipping into things like afterpay, um, random direct debits, you know, <laughs> sort of um, ongoing payments that the bank can't really tell how much those are for and how long they're going to continue. Um, if you've got an overdraft um, or unarranged, if you're going into unarranged overdraft, that shows poor account conduct as well. Um, big cash withdrawals for no apparent reason, um, or just basically just making banking in a way that doesn't really make sense for somebody that's trying to save for a house. So obviously if we go to the bank and we say, hey look, this person's been diligently saving to, towards their first home, but then they look at your bank accounts and it shows otherwise, um, there's two stories there and it immediately becomes a bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah, and the, the bank statements tell a better story than what we write up. Always, for. yeah. <laughs> so I think something that people don't understand at the moment is when you apply for a mortgage, the bank is always going to service the mortgage at a higher interest rate than current. Like obviously right now, interest rates are really low, 2.55% currently, mm. but still the main banks are trying to get the calculation to work when it's at a 7% interest rate. Yep. Do you think that that is something that is going to change? And if it's not, are there other options other than first-tier lenders that mm. people can go for? Yeah, so the banks, uh, in, com in conversations we've had with some of the banks recently, the rates are at 2.55% 2, 2 and some of the servicing rates, basically what they mean is, by servicing rates is, they stack your, they put your income in and they test the mortgage or the debt you're gonna take on at 7% 7, 7 roughly. And you have to be able to achieve a certain, you know, the income, the income coming in minus the expenses going out, including the mortgage, you have to have a surplus left over. So um, it's just in case the interest rates triple, well, basically. Yeah, when, when our parents had mortgages, they were a lot higher than 7%. 
um, and over 30 years, who knows what, that's a long time to be having some debt. So you can't just be relying on the fact that they're low at the moment. Um, so that's kind of what the bank takes into consideration, but realistically 7% when they're 2.5 2 is a bit high. Um, what was your other question? So the obviously first tier lenders are at about 7% servicing. Second tier lenders mm -hmm. are more flexible, usually with the deposit, the debt, the income. They are more expensive, mm -hmm. but do they service the? Do they have a servicing rate at slightly lower as well? Uh, yeah, I believe so. So most of the most of them they they're, they're sort of scrapping for the deal a little bit more, and they're going to move move pieces to to help uh, to help get that over the line. Um, they all the kind of the second tier space has kind of three steps to it. Near bank is kind of what they call, so they're pretty close to what the current banks are offering. So they're going to be still reasonably tight, but the further you go down, uh, the the more loose and the more expensive. They get. But then essentially <laughs> the more expensive it gets. So it's kind of backwards in that way. But okay. um, horses for courses. Yeah. So I think one thing we haven't touched on, and I purposely left this to the end, is uh, five percent deposit buying properties so mm. we've all seen the ads or heard the ads on the radio that you can now buy a house with a five percent deposit i personally have not seen anyone get one of these are these just something that is a bit of a myth or is it really doable as long as you have really good income and no debt yeah so most of the time um the five percent advertised type mortgage situation is actually by property developers um, who are trying to sell properties. So what happens is there's a, an apartment for sale um, where the gimmick basically is you pay 5% of the, the value of the property up front and then you don't pay anything else until completion. That 5% is paid to the developer. It's got nothing to do with the bank actually approving money for you to buy that house. The bank is the one that's giving you the, the rest of the money, right? Yeah, the bank is the one that's going to give you the mortgage, so you need to ask the bank for the money, not the developer, because the developer is not funding you finance. It's a mm. quite a common misconception. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot that is involved in turn, there's kind of what's called a turnkey property, where it's 5% um, deposit, and then they build the house for you, and you don't pay the rest of the money until the property's complete. That's typically what that situation is. If you're looking at a 5% deposit, yeah, you, all those three pillars you talked about, they're going to need to be really, really solid, and then the bank's going to charge you a much higher interest rate. First, with a, with a main bank, like a ASB, ANZ, they're probably looking at about 1.3 to 1.5% more than the current interest rates. Um, and they're probably going to be, yeah, it's going to be, they're going to test that a lot more that's strictly. high, high, high risk for them in this current environment with COVID going on. Yeah. Like, I think we can both say that banks are very busy at the moment and they're taking ages to put through applications. Mm. Um, is that because the current kind of market environment is that a lot of first home buyers see this as a perfect time to buy a house because of the low interest rates, maybe less competition from overseas investors because the borders are closed. Um, would you say that the market is increasing at the moment? And what do you think is going to happen? And then this is the last question. Mm. What do you think is going to happen in the next couple of months? Of course, I know you're not psychic, but just your personal opinion. I think it's a combination of banks dealing with people looking to come off the mortgage holidays that they initially, you know, they set up due to COVID. 
um, and also them trying to make policy changes and then those policy changes being passed on to assessors. It's kind of like a perfect storm of a lot of conditions. Um, people, obviously as well, having a month to sit on their hands and think about what they want to do property-wise has meant that a lot of people have come out the other side of COVID and they've got their got their goals and their plans together and they're looking to put in applications ASAP. And there's also people that have come back that were living overseas that have flooded the market and now they're increasing the demand. And there's a lot more people that wouldn't have been here six to 12 months ago that are now looking to buy property. So yeah, a lot of different reasons. Right, and market, it's going to go up, go down, stay the same, it's going to crash. What do you reckon? Let's do some speculation. Uh, speculation. Um, <laughs> in the short term, I don't see much of a change, really. It's just, there's so much, it's just basic economics, there's so much demand that what we're seeing is, from, from a mortgage broking perspective anyway, like, we can only comment on what we're seeing, and we're seeing lots of applications and lots of people inquiring about properties. There's not as many properties on the market as we would hope at this stage. Um, so supply versus demand. Yeah, there's a lot of demand. Prices should go up if you're looking at basic. There's a lot costs. of demand and, and not enough supply um, of the right type of houses. So I can't until until there's more houses on the market because people are potentially running into issues with their mortgage holidays running out, or um, they're just looking to, to to reduce their risk. And this, their, their sort of risk because their job security is changing a little bit. I don't see the market changing at all until until that happens. All right. Well, Ant, thank you for your 25 minutes exactly. <laughs> uh, for those of you listening, Ant is one of the directors of Tanta, which is the same business that I put my mortgages through. So if you guys have any questions, just go to the show notes, click the link, and you can find out more about what we do.